Good morning, everyone. I want to make this standard disclaimer now that I'm not Randy Boltinghouse, nor have I ever played him on television. <laughs> but if they ever do a movie, no, the, um, I'm probably too tall. This morning, we're going to look at the concept of how the gospel changes the heart. We're going to look at how the gospel changes the heart. But the interesting thing about the word gospel is when you say that word, as I've done it three times now, that you probably have visions of something in your brain. And so most of you are handed a white piece of paper as you came in this morning, and that's what this is for. You were probably all wondering if that was the bulletin or if that was the notes, the sermon, the sermon outline. Well, it kind of is, but you have to, it's a, some assembly required. So what I want you to do is I want you to take that piece of paper and a pencil if you can find one. And then I want you, when I say the the word gospel, that's four. When I say the word gospel, I want you to think of the very first word that comes to your mind and write it down on that piece of paper, okay? Very first word that comes to mind. So your pencil's ready. Everybody ready to go? Ready? Gospel. Right. And some of you are looking at me like, I'm not writing anything down. I've got it right here, steel trap. Okay, so now to the person next to you or someone in your, in your uh, chair row, tell them what you wrote. Were there interesting ones? Why don't you tell me, a couple of, couple of you, this is audience participation, participation time. Tell me what you wrote. Good news? Excellent. What else? Love. Good. Jesus. Excellent. What else? Truth? Worship? Oh, good. Worship? Life? Oh, I like that one. What other one? Cross. Oh, <laughs> excellent, Tim. Hold that up. That, that is awesome. Uh, so now we know that Tim Hayes is a really creative person. Romans 1.16, Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. One of the definitions that Paul has for the gospel out of Romans 1.16 is that it is a power. And the gospel has the power to change our heart. When I think of the word gospel, a lot of things come to mind. The gospel is just a rich word, as we can tell this morning from your different definitions. A lot of times people will reduce the word gospel to, especially if they're not, uh, if they're not renewed or not part of a, uh, uh, not part of uh, the Bible, they would think of the gospel as a series of of rules that they have to follow. When you say the word gospel, they immediately think of a moralistic framework that I have to fit into. But the gospel is not that, as we said, as Brenda said, it is news, not advice. That's what I want to think about. When we hear the word gospel this morning, that's that's the picture I want you to have in your brain, is that it's news, and that's what the word means in the Greek, it's good news, it's news, not advice. It's not moralistic, it's not just a moralistic framework, it is partly that. But it is more news. Jesus lived the life that, that uh, you should have lived. He died the life. He died the death that you should have died so that you might live forever. That's the gospel. 
in a nutshell. In order to understand how the gospel changes the heart, we first have to understand how the heart responds in situations. And so this morning I want to take a quick peek at, um, uh, summarize a book that Jonathan Edwards wrote. And some of you have probably heard a piece of this uh, if you were at Judah a couple months ago. Uh, Just bear with me because we're going to do a deeper dive right now. Um, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Nature of True Virtue. In that book, he explains that whenever you see someone give money to the poor, whenever you see someone help some little old lady across the street, or you see someone being honest, there are two motivations for that behavior. He says there, there is common virtue and there is true virtue. And then he goes on to explain that common virtue has two underlying foundations. Common virtue, one of the foundations is that it's fear. I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me if I don't help that little old lady across the street. What's everybody going to think of me? So that out of that fear, I'm going to be motivated to do a good deed. Or I might want to be really honest in my business, not because honesty is a good thing to do, but because I'm afraid that if I'm not honest, somebody's going to find out and I'm going to lose my business. I'm going to, or I'm afraid if I'm not honest or if I'm not moral in some way, that what is God going to think of me? And so he says that that is one of the underlying foundations of common virtue. And the other side is pride. The other side is pride. Pride is that I'm the kind of person who is honest. And aren't I a great person because I always tell the truth? Don't you love to be around those kinds of people who always tell the truth, whether you want to hear it or not? And I'm the kind of person who gives money to the poor. And I'm going to remind you that I do give money to the poor over and over again so that you can, so that I'm proud of the fact that I'm that kind of person. Or I want to be well known for the good works that I do. Pride is the other underlying foundation of common virtue. But Edward says that when you are moral out of common virtue, you haven't done anything to root out the fundamental cause of evil in the heart which I call the radical self-centeredness of the heart, the radical self-centeredness of the heart. And he put the word radical in front of that because because we are all self-centered to some degree. But we really don't understand, because we're all self-centered, how self-centered we are. And so everything, we can turn, if you are introspective at all, and you're in situations all day long, you can see how I have become, how I can turn a situation to be about me. It's all about me. And I turn the situation towards me. Edward says that when I am moral out of common virtue, out of fear or pride, then I haven't done anything to root out that fundamental self-centeredness, the radical self-centeredness of the heart. In fact, I've nurtured it. Because I've used the self-centeredness of my heart against itself. Instead of dealing with the self-centeredness, you've actually appealed to it by by moving the focus away from the deed or the person who's receiving the deed and onto myself. Aren't I a great person for taking care of that? Or I'm afraid of what people are going to think if I don't take care of that. And so the fundamental self-centeredness of the heart is not only intact, but it's nurtured at the center of your soul. So what happens when that happens? So what is the outcome of that? The problem with common virtue is that, that in my, in, if I'm trying to be moral in the, in the center of myself, and that morality is in fact based on self-centeredness, 
then my behavior is going to be completely different than if I'm moral or if, I, if I'm doing those good deeds from the heart. The other problem with common virtue is, is the reason that I tell the truth is also the reason that I lie. Because if it's all about me, then if you're afraid of what people think or you think that they can't handle the truth, then you might lie again. You might say, oh, I'm afraid I didn't finish that project I was supposed to finish for my boss, but he's going to ask me about it. And so I'm going to tell him, I haven't even started, but I'm going to tell him I'm almost done because I'm afraid of what he's going to think. There I've crossed the boundary and I've lied, but because it's all about me, it, common virtue is a house of cards. Because some situation is going to come up where it's to my best interest to, tell the, to not tell the truth, and I find myself in various situations. That's why when we look on the news and we see um, people who are, are doing embezzling money or people who are having affairs... And they say, and they wake up and they find they, they say to themselves, how could I do this? I wasn't raised this way. But if the root of their, uh, of their moral foundation is common virtue, then yes, it was. They were, it's exactly how they were raised. Let me give you an example about this. In March, there was a flood in, in the Midwest. And I know we're in the Midwest, but it's the Midwestern Midwest over in Nebraska and Iowa, I think it was. And so there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was on the op-ed page, about a guy who had a house that was being endangered by the flood. And so people, uh, he called for help, and a bunch of uh, college kids and volunteers came out to his house and put up sandbags around his house. And then the floodwaters got higher, so he called them again, and they, again they came out. And they called him again, and again they came out, and they built up this dike around his house, and they were able to save his house. He said the interesting thing was, in that article, the same kid, one of the college students, came all three times. And so the guy said, you know, it's really great that you came here, but, you know, I don't understand why you came here all three times, because this is hard work, and it, it was cold. You remember it was cold back then. Why did you come? And the young man I never forget this, said, my mom would kill me if she didn't know I was going to help. So you see, as laudable as his efforts were, they were motivated by common virtue. They were motivated by common virtue. So we have to understand when we are, when we are basing our lives on this common virtue where there is fear or where there is pride, that what's underneath that. Because what's underneath that is really idolatry. If you look at Exodus chapter 20 and you look at the Ten Commandments, I'm going to read them to you because my brain doesn't work well when I'm in front of people. Um, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. slavery. See, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. So the first two commandments are about idolatry. And notice when I read those that there wasn't a third option. There wasn't, you're either going to worship God or you're going to worship something else. But there was no third option. And you might say to yourself, well, of course there's a third option. I'm not going to worship anything at all. Which by definition is worshiping the fact that you're not worshiping anything at all, you see. So, so, we, so idolatry is a danger that if we... If we replace at the center of our existence something other than God, then we're just going to worship that. And idolatry is not just one sin among many. It's the gateway to sin. Because if you think about it, 
if I really want uh, to embezzle money in the bank, the first thing that I'm going to do is take my eyes off of God, and I'm going to look at the money in the bank, and that's going to become my idol. I really have to have that money. So idolatry is not just one sin of many. It's the gateway to sin. If I first take my eyes off of God, then it's easy to cheat, and it's easy to lie, and it's easy to uh, commit adultery, and it's easy to do all the, all the other Ten Commandments and other sins that it talks about. So common virtue, by definition, is putting something else other than God at the center of your heart, whether that's the approval of others, power, money, beauty. Those idols coming out of your heart will motivate your behavior. Because common virtue only works by restraining the will. It either speaks to pride when you live up to your expectations or increases your self-loathing when you don't live up to your expectations. But again, the radical self-centeredness of the heart is still intact and it's nurtured. Whenever you fail, and I do this, whenever you fail at something, my first, my first reaction is, I'm going to try harder. And I think that's a clue to the fact that if I'm trying harder, I'm trying to curtail the will. I'm not really changing the heart. I'm really trying to restrain the will and to do something else. Let me give an example of what common virtue does. I just happen to have a balloon here because I put them in my pocket this morning. And so I have this balloon and I'm going to blow it up and... And tie it. That's good. And I'm going to squish it out because it works best this way. Trust me on that. All right. And then I just happen to have a marker in my pocket, too, because I put it in my pocket. And I'm going to write on one side fear and the other side pride. So I have an F and a P. So you have this balloon here, right? This nice Illini orange balloon ready for football season. I'm trying not to get that on me. Okay, good. So fear and pride. So what happens when this is your life? Really? It's my life? Yes, it is. Because if you're living by common virtue, then when I am worried about fear, when I am doing well with my expectations, when I'm doing the right kind of stuff, then my fear is decreased, hopefully. Is the F getting smaller? No. But what happens is the fear gets smaller and the pride gets bigger, right? And so when I fail at my expectations, then the pride gets smaller. This works the best. My pride gets smaller because you can hardly see the little P. And then the fear gets bigger. And so you spend your life going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between this common morality. And that gets tiresome, doesn't it? But what the gospel does is it destroys fear and it destroys pride. What the gospel does, in effect, is breaks the balloon. Sorry about that. It breaks that kind of lifestyle so that whenever, so that the fear is gone. Now, how does it do that? It does that because it's true virtue. It's honest. It's honesty when you are honest, not because it profits you, because it's a heart change. Because you are smitten by the beauty of God. This is what Edward says. Who is the truth? It's when you come to love truth-telling, not for my sake, but because of God's sake. And again, that's a heart change. The gospel destroys fear. Because if God loves me, 
as much as I imagine that he loves me, then he knows intimately my, intimately my thoughts. And he knows exactly what I'm thinking. And he knows exactly when I'm being idolatrous about whatever is around me. And he knows that, and yet he still loves me. So the gospel destroys that fear, because I don't have to be afraid of God, because if the only one that matters is what God thinks of me. So the gospel destroys fear. It also destroys pride, because who am I kidding? I am so evil, God had to come, send his son to die on the cross to restore my relationship to him, because I cannot do it on my own, because I am so, I, I am so evil inside. I think Ephesians chapter 3 illustrates this so well. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, Paul is writing to the people at Ephesus, and he starts this prayer. This is, this is the cool prayer because this is the most important thing Paul could be saying to the Ephesus. This is the thing that Paul, well, the most important thing that Paul is saying to God about the people in Ephesians. What's important to Paul that the people at Ephesus knows? Are you ready? It says this, I pray that out of, 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what was the most important thing that Paul thought that the Ephesians should know about God? That he loved them. That was, the, that was the critical part. And notice that he says that it was coming from the inside. It wasn't just an outward thing. He says that I want to strengthen you in your inner being, literally the inside man, not the outside man, not what people see, but God says, I'm going to, Paul says, I want God to strengthen that so that Christ may dwell. And the word for dwell there, it means to house permanently. I want Christ to, to be permanently in your heart so that you are able to comprehend, to be entirely competent, to figure out together with all the saints. Now, that's a critical phrase because we can't do that outside of the fellowship of, of the body. That we can't just understand the love of God unless we're in a body. And I know that sometimes in the body, you, you have a hard time understanding the love of God too because we're in the body. But, but God says that within the body, you can understand, you can be entirely competent to understand how much God loves you. I remember when... Um, Karen was uh, severely sick for months on end, and people in this church took, brought us meals uh, every day. Uh, it was a different meal every day, and they were all delicious. And I remember thinking about this um, um, event going on that, we, that there was no way that I could have made it on my own. And then all of a sudden, I'm seeing the body of Christ every day, people that we didn't know were bringing us meals at that point, bring us meals every single day because in the body you begin to see the love of God played out that we might be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God Paul writes here now the interesting thing is in chapter 4 verse 1 so after he prays that their heart is changed is filled to the bursting with the love of God 
He says, as a prisoner of the Lord in four one. therefore I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now notice he didn't say, okay, now you have to get your life straight, and then I want you to understand how Jesus is going to change your heart. No, he doesn't say that. He says, first, I want you to understand how God is going to change your heart, and then out of that heart change, out of that heart change, we are able to, uh, we are able to make behavioral changes in our life. That's how the gospel changes our lives. It destroys fear, it destroys pride, and replaces it with, with this concept of how much God loves us. So what, so what do I do with this? It's great, Tim. What do I do with this? The first thing you have to do is you understand that, that when you're looking at your behavior, you have to understand whether it's common or, or uh, uh, true virtue. And that's a hard thing to do. It, as, as you begin to think about it, I know um, the situation will come up and say, well, am I doing that out of fear or pride, or am I doing that because I love God? And that's the first, and that's the first step. But underneath that is also you have to be able to recognize your idol. There's the old man inside of us that, is always, um, that, is always, that we're always fighting with. And if you look at Romans 7, you can see how Paul describes that. But the idol is always putting itself in front of God, and that manifests, so the idol is really me. I'm just putting myself in the center of God. But God says, but, but, the, but that idolatry manifests itself in different, way, different ways. It manifests itself in the, I want secure, the security that money brings. I want power over people. I want approval. I want beauty. Those kinds of things all, all boil down to putting me in the center of it. So how am I going to be able to recognize the idols that are in my life? One thing you might do is to look for repetitive behavior that you have difficulty rooting out. If you see behavior, it's kind of like a tree. You know those trees that grow? I never found out the name. But those tree, they're tree plant, they're weeds, really. We call them tree of paradises, and they grow up, and, and you cut them off, and about two weeks later, they're grown up again, and you cut them off, and, about two, and they stink like like a stinkweed. But anyway, maybe that's what we should call them. But anyway, those kinds of things, they never go away if you keep cutting them off at the top. What you have to do is you have to dig down deep and get rid of the roots. And once you get rid of the root, then it does, generally doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. But if you're looking for repetitive behavior that you have difficulty rooting out, then if it keeps coming back again, then you have to look beho- below that behavior at the root that will see what, why is it? Have you ever had your spouse or a friend or someone come up to you and talk to you about some specific act of your behavior? And then your reaction to that might be perhaps a little bit defensive or even angry or even yelling at them. Well, that's not true about me. I'm not like that. Or if you ever, in my house, if you ever have your wife explain to you that perhaps you would, shouldn't work so much, and then if you find yourself getting defensive about that, then maybe underneath that is an idol that you should go looking for. So first you have to recognize your idol. You look for repetitive behaviors that you can't root out. And you look for strong emotion whenever someone brings it up to you. If the thought of removing something makes you unaccountably angry or incredibly sad, like you just can't go on. Remember what Todd talked about a couple of weeks ago about the deal breaker? God, I'll do everything else in my life, but if you make me give up that, that's the deal breaker. I'm not sure I want to do that. I like that picture. 
then you have to root out the idol. First, it's not good enough that you have see the idol, but you have to root it out. And the most important part is, what will get my heart to move away from the idol? And this is it. Tim Keller says, to replace idols so that they won't grow back, you must learn to rejoice in the particular thing that Jesus brings to replace the particular idol in your heart. You must learn to rejoice in the particular thing that Jesus brings to replace the particular idol in your heart. Now, let me give you an illustration of that. If you worry about not having enough money, if that's a big concern of yours, so that it becomes an idol, and you maybe you start hoarding money, maybe when your uh, wife comes home with a bar of ivory soap, you say, why'd you buy that? We don't need that all. Well, the next time I'm on a business trip, I'll get all the cheap soap from there, and we'll smoosh it into one. It'll be fine. We don't need to be doing that. Not that I've ever done that. But the, uh, if, we, if, I'm worried, if we're worried about that, then remember what Jesus brings. Matthew 6.25 says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? That's the particular thing that Jesus brings to my heart to combat the particular idol that I face all the time. And what you're doing is you're seeking a sense of the reality of what Jesus brings to your heart so that what Jesus brings to my heart is as real as approval, beauty, money, sex, power, or whatever idol you're thinking of right now. Now, how do we do that? Well, one way to do that is by worship, by coming this morning and singing those songs that we sang this morning. And if I were just to read the words, that I'm not going to, but if I were just going to read the words to these songs, then they're not going to stay in your heart. But if I sing them, they're going to be anchored in there. And they're going to be songs that you're there are going to stay there forever. And, and, and you've all heard stories about people under incredible stress where where songs that they knew as children come back to them. That's, what, that's the way to make Jesus as real to your heart. Because it's not enough to know what your brain, to know that in your brain. You have to know it in your heart as well. And again, that's why we worship. So the band is coming now. I bet you've noticed. The band is coming now. And we're going to sing a song that I heard at Cornerstone. Uh, it's been out for a while. But it really speaks to Ephesians, back to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God.